This is quantization. Hi, we are Arezu Talibzadeh and Kavar Shurinia, and this is our podcast on inclusion. Quantization is an independent project with support of Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University. Hello and welcome to the 16th episode of Quantization. Returning to the topic of housing and living places, we invited Bianca Wiley and Yuta Trevrinanus to talk about housing and homelessness. The subject itself is broad and touches many areas, including government policies and routes and its history. As a result, this conversation will come in two parts. The first part is on the background of the complex issue, and the second one will focus more on homelessness. You can also listen to our previous related episodes or read the full transcripts. Episode 11, Built Environment and Public Health, and Episode 14, Aging, Inclusion and Homelessness. Bianca is an open government advocate. She is the co-founder of Digital Public, a co-founder of Tech Reset Canada, and is a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation. She worked for several years in the tech sector in operations, infrastructure, corporate training, and product management. She is also a columnist, guest lecturer, and a speaker on open government and public sector technology policy. Yuta Trevranos is the director of the Inclusive Design Research Center, IDRC, and professor at OCAD University in Toronto, formerly the Adaptive Technology Resource Center. She also established an innovative graduate program in inclusive design. Yuta has led many international multi-partner research networks that have created broadly implemented technical innovations that support inclusion. The IDRC conducts proactive research and development in the inclusive design of emerging information and communication technology and practices. Hello, Yuta and Bianca. Thank you for being part of this conversation and welcome to our podcast. Let's start by introducing yourselves. Hi, I'm Yuta Trebranus and I'm the director of the Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University. Hi, I'm Bianca Wiley, and I'm the co-founder of Tech Reset Canada. This is episode 16, volume 13 of Signal, Fungi Network, part 1. So Bianca, I've, I've wanted to talk to you about so many different things. I mean, so much of what you've written, so much of what you've said resonates with what we are 
grappling with and uh, wanting, struggling to find ways to resolve within the Inclusive Design Research Center. And um, there are some really gnarly, complex issues that we, we haven't yet found ways to resolve, or we have some sense of what might be a promising direction and a sense of what are really dangerous directions that things are sliding in or on sort of this collision course. And you touch upon many of those. So I, I really welcome this opportunity to uh, perhaps struggle in finding uh, some directions with you, um, because I think collectively adding up what you've been considering and giving careful thought to are also some of the, the directions that we have. So I'm hoping through this conversation, we can find perhaps some new insights that might progress in the more promising rather than the risky directions that we're going in. And today, what we wanted to talk about was the issue of housing and place and home and who participates in the planning of that, who benefits, who's marginalized, and talk a little bit more about homelessness and statelessness, uh, the participation in the decision-making about who has the right to space, who has the right decisions about what happens to place and home and living. Um, so that's that's what this conversation hopefully is about. Thanks for setting that up. There's a lot of kindness in that offer um, to have this conversation, and I'm very excited to have it because I think when you talk about risk and opportunity and um you know, I think that the gnarliness and the messiness, if there's only one thing to say before we get into it, it's that we need to, I think, be wrangling with, with that more and differently. You know, I think like for me, the idea that we just, I don't know, I'm, I'm stuck between this tension of we know very well what we should do and we don't do it, but also how are we pragmatic in the face of that, right? So how do we evolve? How do we adapt? How do we, I've, I've just recently been thinking a lot about salvage, you know, like we have these mm -hmm. institutions and they touch many of the topics you talked about. They're not working for a lot right. of people, but they're there, they're big. And there has to be, to my mind, some reuse or adaptation that we, you know, in terms of collectiveness of governance and discussions of building and power, we can't go from zero either. So, you know, like, so, so what to do tomorrow is really my question always, right? Like, what are we supposed to do when we wake up tomorrow about these things um, and honor all of that history, but also be, be ready for the messiness that's, that, that, that we're sitting in and, and, and make that messiness joyous enough that people want to join us in that work. I right. think that feels like such a common theme right now is these things, we have to have a different tone. We have to get back to knowing what collectiveness is. And I'll, I'll just end on this one point of um, profound alienation, loneliness, and expecting people to be politicized anew when their starting point is so grim um, because of how all of these systems have treated them, um, right. which these are systems... I, I shouldn't depersonalize it. The humans that have designed and implemented these systems are treating them, you know, like how, how do we get at that? And that's a much more to me, emotional and human challenge than and psychological. And I have also been struggling with how we think about different worldviews. Mm -hmm. What are the words and stories that we tell to make it possible to think really differently than, than, you know, than we've been doing the last you know, 
whatever. I, I, I really have been rooting myself in the 80s on, you know, like if we're going to talk about anything, we have to start, to my mind, at least 40 years back. I mean, ideally, you go all the way back to the beginning of, of, of shared history of humans. But um, I think there's something cr- that really specific about the last four, you know, four decades and what they've done to our capacity to operate as people together in our, in our governance and our democracy. So I'll stop there. I think those, those are the high level, some of the themes that I, I think we'll probably touch on, but I'd love to get it grounded in the particulars of, of what you're thinking about. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you touch upon this notion of trust and willingness to engage and having burned by saying your piece but not being heard or being sidelined. I think one of the largest, most egregious collateral damage of the last four has been that idea of trust and engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, I mean, one of the things that what you just said triggered in me is this concern that I've had that one of the things we've lost is the ability for self-critique. The polarization that's happened has made it such that we are so defensive that there's no opportunity to actually improve or to evolve or progress things like democracy and evidence and truth and the, the processes of knowledge. They We've reduced them to these very, very simplistic, very shallow senses of what they are. And so they they know that to some extent has robbed us of those tools. The problem is, of course, that it, it's this vicious cycle or this chicken and egg concept, because in order to actually salvage, we have to rethink how we actually do the processes. How do we not lose the the value of democracy by virtue of critiquing democracy and and rethinking what we mean by democracy or what we mean by uh, non-ideological decision-making, how we arrive at things like consensus. And and I'm probably getting too theoretical here, but... um, No, but I think to to, to make some of that very personal, one of the things that I have experienced and continue to think a lot about is when everyone is as ragged as they are because of circumstance that has been, you know, over decades. Again, imagine for people to want to engage in our democracy, to engage in advocacy and activism and collective action after perhaps a day that has drained them and robbed them of energy in the first place, you have to think about what you're inviting people to. And the ways that we talk to each other right now, even the conversation about how we have conversations doesn't feel right to me for the most part. We're getting into this cancel culture, woke, like there's there's, yeah. there's, a, there's a polarization even in there, which in some ways doesn't allow us to have the, the conversation that feels like it needs to be had, which is more about who's allowed to make a mistake. And, and I think we know this, right? It's like, who's allowed to fail? Who's allowed to be in public and say the wrong thing? Who can afford their narrow group of colleagues or allies to be upset with them? And, and, and I think this is where this all gets very dangerous, is that everybody has such, in some cases, limited access to support and kindness and love in their journey as a human, period, that when you get into these really emotional spaces, 
they're not generally um, creating the space we need to have hard, messy conversations where you're going to screw up multiple times in a day, right? Like that is not the kind of space that we're creating for the most part. Everything we say now is too broad brush, right? There are places that are exceptions to this rule, of course, but there are so many days where I stop and I think my job is to politicize net new people. We don't need, to my mind, to keep reshuffling the partisan deck because that's what, for me, our political leaders, everybody knows generally how they can game who's involved or not, right? And if we need to politicize net new people, there has to be a good, compelling reason for them to come and join a fight with us. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the spaces that I see or I'm, I'm you know, adjacent to, and I try my best not to be doing this thing I'm talking about, right? But it's hard. Because we are all ragged. And I think this is the problem is that the institution of this state is supposed to be doing so much of this lifting without, like, I think we have, the bar is so low that even some of the things that are up for consultation should not be. And like, there was a consultation in Toronto about poverty reduction years ago. And I remember thinking, this is grotesque. Like we are asking people to come out to, 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 to prioritize and rank which of their poverties they would like to have at the bottom or the top of the list. Is it access to transportation? Is it housing? Is it childcare? Which of these indignities would you like inflicted upon you in a priority order? The fact that that could happen to me, this is why I always go back to the 80s. Like there's so much that's now, and this is Wendy Brown's work. Um, the Undoing the, the Demos is a really good book. David Murakami Wood recommended it to me and lent it to me. And we're having to show up for fights where we're not informing things. It's pure defense. It's mitigation of the worst thing. That's not what co-design, I, you know this better than I do, but I mean, that's so different than the work we need to be doing together. That's why I'm not ready to let the state off the hook because we can't do this all on our own. There's types of infrastructures that are big capital investments that we can't just do on our own. We can't just come together and figure it out ourselves and just give up on the state. But um, there was a lot in there, but I'll stop there. But I'm just saying like that piece of how we need to do our work is highly unresolved to my mind. And we're even struggling with the language to, I don't know where we even talk. It's great that we're talking about this because I don't even know where this particular conversation can live. And my additional worry to all of that is that the salvage or the renovation, the rebuilding needs to go, I think, far before the 80s. Um, And just even this this notion of what is planning, what's decision making. We're denying that people are diverse, that everybody's got that uh, we're, we're still basing our decision making and even our consultation process on trying to find the 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 one thing the priority the the ranking the rating what one of the other things we're asking people there to do is to make just untenable compromises that are going to unravel the whole thing anyways we are pitting one person against the other one critical need against another um and so just at the very, very core or foundation of those consultations or engagements or 
whatever we want to call it, even co-design or participatory design, is this un this sense that there is um, a dominant view or there's one priority or there's a winning system. Um, one of the things that I've um, found solace in is to think more and more about these very, very tiny, small, bottom-up um, community things where we rebuild right from the ground up, um, where it starts with a few people and their concerns and the, the kindness and generosity to each other and, and co-constructing something that starts very small and grows slowly from there. But the other sort of silver lining to the to the current disruption is: is there an opportunity to get that far back to to really rethink right to the point of how we make decisions, how we arrive at, how we plan, how we move forward with our planning? Well, I think in two things. One of them is that I've been on long overdue. Ex rapidly accelerating understanding of the reconciliation. I always have to say, without truth, there is none. And we all, you know, in terms of the Canadian history, looking at what the idea of treaty offers in this country, because the shakiness even of the sovereignty of this country, when you talk about how far back you go in history, right? When I mentioned worldview, I think that this is one place where I really have hit a wall in how you describe different worldview. Because I think one of the things I'm concerned about in Canada, and it will get back to, to the micro, but just to, to touch on the historical, the, the core, core fundamental piece of anything in terms of relationship to land is then turning around and thinking about relationship amongst people and animals, planet, everything, but it's relationship, you know, this idea of relationship, right? And I think in Canada, the thing that I see a, a serious tension in is those that have put in a lot of work to understand Canada's long history, um, sometimes to my mind in treaty and treaty is not everywhere in Canada, just to say it, but in the idea of a relationship, I think to my mind is remembering there's two parties to it and that it's not about trying to convert to a different worldview. It's understanding that you're in relationship through in Canada, through the crown as, as, as I, my responsibility is to uphold my end of the deal and I need to work through my institution, no matter how much I want to be frustrated by it. Um, that's the work that I think it, is, it, it can't be left behind in this sort of like, whatever our new way of doing our work is, we always, to my mind, have to still rehook it to the state because through all of what is being done that's wrong in this country is done in, in our name, you know, as, as a, in myself as a settler, I, I identify all the harm that's happening, you know, all the way through and back to the land, that it's being done in my name, which means I'm okay with it, basically, right? If it's being done in my name, I, I, I co-sign and I'm complicit. And I think the reason I bring this up is because the wall for me that I'm hitting is that that, for better or for worse, tomorrow morning, this democracy and the state and the city and the planning department and all of it, that's what we do have to contend with, right? And so how do we map? And here, I think, I don't know if you're familiar with Sheila Foster's work. A little bit. So she's been doing this work, long study over the over the last years, of the of the of the idea of co-creating the city and thinking about Eleanor Ostrom's work as, you know, the commons. Yeah. 
And, and I think the, in terms of how you, and, and how you hold that up versus the right to the city, because they're different. They're, they're interesting, different thinking, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I bring this back down to the practical and back to the land and back to these conversations of a place and a few people and a project and a something, um, how do we salvage what's useful of the interface of the state and map it to what you talked about, those few kind individuals who are willing to work together to do something helpful? How do those two things talk to each other? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. for me this this real space of opportunity. Yeah. But who has the time and the energy to dig in to do that? And even if you think about the funding of that work or the support of that labor, there's no such thing. And and one of the reasons that I do go to the 80s a lot is I don't know if people have fully viscerally understood the damage that the nonprofit and philanthropic sector has done to the idea of volunteerism and volunteerism comes with a whole politics of trouble. So not to say like who gets to participate, right? But my, 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 the last 40 years have been utter failure in terms of what this civil society piece is supposed to be supporting and bringing to the table, right? Like, and I think we have to, there's something in there that is particularly germane to this discussion, right? Because all of these civil society places where the people can show up because it's part of their job to the consultation at 10 a.m., they're still hemmed in because of the economics and the politics of that model, right? So I, I don't see the identification of that particular slice happening enough because it gets us right back to what we were talking about earlier. It's uncomfortable to talk about the dynamics of power and money when it's people saying, no, I'm here to do the right thing. No, I'm, I'm, I'm here on behalf of civil society. No, I'm here on behalf of people. And I think you know, like I know, I know a lot of people who are not well represented by civil society. So what do we salvage from that? Because that to me is less salvageable than the state. Even before you got to the the point of uh, representation, I was going to talk about the, the difficulty of representation and who represents and just and who is representable even by, by virtue of being so unique and different from the conception of who is being served. Of course, we've been working in the disability space, and there this is such a tangled and messy domain. Um, just even the of and the for issue has been there for some time. And this one of the biggest enemies, I think, of equity and dignity within that space has been charity, which was clothed as something that was for and that had good intentions. But the the charity ecosystem is so destructive. Uh, the, the power imbalance that's there, the implicit notion that, and, and of course, that, that also has echoes in Canadian history, where you have a something clothed in this notion of doing good when in fact what it's doing is extracting your power your say your um, the relationship of needing to be 
have gratitude towards someone that is is in fact really not thinking about your best interests in the long term. Yeah. And we don't talk about efficacy and we need to because this stuff has not been working. When I say this stuff, I mean philanthropy in so many spaces in the nonprofit sector. Um, and I don't mean to belittle the holding back the worse, but we're, we're, we've solidly entrenched the status quo in ways that it makes it so difficult to understand where you break, like how, how you break through it because of, and that gets, again, the worldview piece, right? That's that's a very Victorian world. That is the founding notion of, of some of this country is that Victorian looking down on the world. And, you know, if, if, if you can't make it work, there must be something wrong. So let me help you. That is so destructive. And I think if, if I fast forward this to something very current in terms of how it manifests, compliance is a terrible space for creativity, opportunity, hope, yes. joy, beauty. And what I'm concerned about in, say, the disability and the design space is that when people come into maybe advocacy or activism without a deep grounding of, of the understanding of these histories and worldviews is that they turn around and start hollering about compliance. And that is not it. That 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 yeah. is such a short sell of the beauty of what could be designed differently. And if you come into the world with a compliance mindset, you're cooked because that's where the state is fantastic. So we yeah. have to be so careful where you line up for things that have a compliance mechanism right. as as what success looks like you know and yeah. that i'm sure you know specifics of the way that is manifested in the disability space in ways that i don't but i know that just generally it it doesn't invite either right like a, a very very tiny this is the tiniest example but when i have started to write all um alternative text for images when i'm writing for some people might be a drag because it slows them down for me has given me this reason to pause and stop. I'm like, wow, how am I going to describe this? And I've had beautiful, wonderful moments of stopping and, and sometimes going, this is not worth it, first of all, because it slowed me down enough to think, what am I even, what am I doing right now? And speed is something we should talk about. But, but just that tiny, tiny version of realizing, wow, if we have to, you know, like doing the work to make things accessible uh, is a creative opportunity. And I don't think most people, when they in, when they interact with things related to disability communities, that's, I don't think that's their first or no. second or third, maybe even thought. I think somehow they line up behind something that has to do with compliance for equity. And, yeah. and there yeah. we've, and there, there, there we go. We've just lost such a huge right. surface area for 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 really thoughtful beautiful creation that would invite people in exactly so this feels like one of these internal internal places of trouble yeah and compliance denies diversity as well i i mean it was a strategy of a group that felt marginalized and so i know very well very intimately that that weird unintended consequence and of course by um, the things like the web content accessibility guidelines, which I was complicit in, in helping to develop, has become this sacred thing that, you know, if I, and, and having critiqued it for, and the direction that it has taken, to some extent, uh, I, I'm, I'm being disloyal to my field, 
is, is how it's viewed. Um, and, and I'm currently involved in a number of initiatives where I'm representing accessibility, universal design, inclusive design. And it's, it's so disheartening to see uh, the, the reaction to it being a, a, a legal liability risk. So it's, it's viewed as a risk assessment and as seen as something that is antithetical to the other good values of the design, which is so sad because, of course, the in inclusive design as we see it would be to, to honor and understand the value of diversity, that here is the opportunity to create something that works for the full range of individuals. And with that comes adaptability, creativity, innovation, uh, and new ways forward. Uh, this to me strikes at the heart of something that never, ever goes away, which is, and it's part of the Western worldview problem. You have to be able to hold on to two truths at the same time. And our brains, when you grow up in a Western worldview culture, don't like that idea. And to how to get out of that idea, because it's not to say that there shouldn't be compliance. No, of yeah, course right. there should be. But if you put all your energy into this mitigation, raising the bar, and this is why we also have to talk about, we are in, we are at the end of such a, such a wild wreckage decline mode. Like you can't invite people into this work without describing, we're holding back some wildly powerful forces. And that's not even the full ex extent of the work, but that energy and that labor is undoing people. And that's not even the other side of, and I'm already two is too few, but this is this two truths piece, right? And this mm -hmm. is why in the pandemic, I will say personally, one of my big struggles has been on one hand, I wanna roll in a ball and, and just, just say, I need to rest because we're in a fight and flight persistence that is not right and we're going to have fallout right at the same time the safe power is accelerating and entrenching itself i'm watching technology procurements flying through the political offices and i'm thinking well they're not no one here seems to be slowing down no right yeah. and so that's like in this moment we're never going to stop having to contend with this two truths of this mitigating de defensive work and holding it it's like always having two feet in one foot in, in a different place as the other, right? I think all of us need to have this mindset of how do you honor and critique the defensive work and keep enough energy and space to do the productive building work? And not, that's, you know, of course, both are productive, but and mm -hmm. productive brings its own plethora of trouble. But you follow to my mind at the, at the heart of this thing is this inability to hold on to multiple things at the same time. And that's so, because it's a worldview thing to me, in, in my read of the world, I have a Western worldview. I have that Victorian mindset. I have that scientific, and the amount of energy I have to take every time I write something to say, one of the solutions, one of the problems, one of the ways we could do this, that, that, that we have to thread together tens and hundreds of approaches, diversity of tactics, right? Right. So how do we do that meta organizing? Because what happens in our activism and our advocacy is that binary thing kicks in again. Yes, right? exactly. And it's yeah. also why gender discussions have been and, you know, transgender discussions have been so informative to that is a place where I see, although it's fraught and people's learnings are all over the place, 
there's a thing happening of expansiveness where there is a visibility and, and, and a discourse that applies to our relationship to so many other things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All, all the way into the building and the land, all of it. It's it's, it's all yeah. in there. And so I think part of this may also be how do we get out of the literal and into more of the figurative abstract exactly. storytelling stuff that lets us take some of these issues and like reorganize them to our work. And and I mean, mushrooms, I don't know how much you trip around that. That was see right away. I trip not mushrooms are one of the species, you know, this sort of place between plants and humans where there's so much language and so many graphics that help people see these really deep systems composed of, and back, I just want to go back to your point about um, a few people. In, in, in fungal systems, I know nothing of this. This is a tiny anecdote. I, I don't know about mycelium. I don't know this stuff. But when you think about the tiny, tiny, tiny pieces of systems that hold soil, from eroding into the ocean, like that you have these tiny, tiny, tiny little things that together are so strong and they're holding, you know, they're holding back major physical occurrence. It's like, how do we be more like fungi? That's one of the ways I've been thinking. How, how, how can we be more like fungi together? And there's a lot to borrow from decentralized governance um, in systems like that. And and I feel like I'm very late on, on the bus of this, but there's this film called Fantastic Fungi. And <laughs> it was one of the ways I started to learn about mycelium. And and look, when I go and I turn to the, um, the, the sort of tech networks that are doing cool things, they've been on this forever. Of course they have. Of course they have. <laughs> they know, yeah. right? They understand salvage. They understand different um, different ways for governance and decentralized systems and how things that are very small and far apart work together. And so like these natural opportunities for learning and converting into our advocacy spaces feels like there's some there. Like that's a space where I feel kind of a little excited and happy when I look at it and think, okay, there's some language here. There's some actual science in here. It can relate for analogy and for storytelling. Um, and it doesn't throw away because this this is really important. Western science doesn't all go in a trash bin because it, you know it has all kinds of problematic elements. There is value to quantifying and to math and to science. Of course there is, right? Mm -hmm. but, yeah. But but how do we find these spaces where there's where there's the abundance of thinking around systems, but it's practical enough? Because I can't sit for more than an hour in like a design thinking. Um, abstract systems conversation. I can't because I start to get antsy. And then I think, well, what, how does this manifest in life? And um, that's, that's just a place where, again, gnarly, messy, I'm not sure, but just trying to point to something that has helped me think a little bit. And I'm definitely reading a lot more about mushrooms this year than I was last year. <laughs> yeah. And of course, yeah, uh, Ursula Franklin talked about earthworming, right? We have to act like earthworms as well. Those um, and and I've gone through that evolution of thought of, I mean, I, I was quite enamored by Kevin Kelly's uh, notion of a, a collective mind, etc. The the tying together of a networks for for a very short period of time. I I love the the idea of the role of fungi in creating a communication system among trees where um, it's it's a way of being generous to another tree or, or sur collective survival where 
um, if you have drought in one tree or if it's not getting the right nutrients or the, the interaction between the deciduous and coniferous trees in terms of the seasons where they feed each other through the fungi. And those are lovely models. The one thing that um, I have been, the two ideas that I've been holding, trying to hold is this notion that that stasis is not, if we take the WCAG or the, the, the conformance and compliance, uh, and it's funny that I'm, I'm tying those two words together, but I think to some extent it is the same thing. Um, the, the one thing that we can't do there is, is um, ossify something mm-hmm. and cause stasis. And I think that's the point at which it's it's arrived at uh, the accessibility legislation, uh, and it it also has a industry capitalist uh, notion there because w- what's happening is it has sprouted an industry that wants to self preserve and grow, um, and so if we look at what actually could have been legislated, a lot of the things that didn't have an industrial motive or a a profit motive to it are not growing as they should. So um, it's supporting this idea of WCAG compliance because that's something that that can be sold. And where the fear or the risk of non-compliance is something that can be used to to motivate someone to hire someone to test whether it's compliant. Um, As where the authoring side of it, which would mean that people with disabilities would be able to also be producers and would, and the, it it would decrease the amount of um, testing that needs to, the profitable testing that would happen. because the tool itself would create accessible content wherever possible, uh, that um, has not made it as far. So it's a, it's a really really interesting analogy to see where is there public uh, support, just ecosystem support for certain types of good policy, and where is there not? Um, but but I think in in here where I when we talk about let's say homelessness, housing, um, the idea that people should, and, and I think this also brings us back to rights. And when you talk about the right to the city or housing as a human right, um, good access to justice thinking is your rights are only as useful as your um, capacity to exercise them. And I think there's something that we have to say, like it's, again, there's an obscenity level here with what people have to come and consult on and debate and fight mm-hmm. for. Yeah. And, and how is it possible? Um, because that, to me, the, 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 the kind of stasis piece of what the state represents is like, this is where we should be showing up. And I'm going to, again, reference, like Wendy Brown's work is really interesting. And she's stuck on the neoliberal piece of this. And the reason it matters is, there's many reasons, but one reason is that, so many people have come to accept their democracy and their rights within a democracy only as like economic, like they have to be tied to economics. 
mm-hmm. except yeah. how that, that you show up. Even like, and she, she mentions back to, you know, Barack Obama had a speech where it was all about people coming to the United States. And you always hear this one, well, this person was a refugee or this person was an immigrant. That's not, that. you don't have to produce to have rights, right? And and mm-hmm. I think the idea that like, that, that somehow our rights as political people are now always framed and there has to be some economic piece. You know, you have to come to the table with a, with a narrative that res, that responds to economic and social yeah. pressure, right? We need to show up to the state in a non-economic capacity because we have other rights related to these things and we need to exercise, and this is where I love a broader group of people, newly politicized, to show up because the demands for housing is for everybody in Canada to have housing. Come on. How many people are really going to come, you know, like, I know there are people who would say you don't deserve housing if you don't know how to have a job or if you can't be productive. I don't think that's the majority of Canada. Now, Canada surprises me on a daily basis. So, you know what, if we get everybody out, I'm ready to be disappointed. I'm disappointed all the time. But that fight is one that so many other people could be picking up because you don't have to think a lot of that, honestly. Like, it's like, where are we creating false complexity in the fighting? That piece of it, to, to ask people to show up for other people's human rights was probably the one, I don't know if you saw that speech, um, in, in the, the only thing in the last American electoral cycle running up to now was that speech of holding people holding hands and a man saying, if you've had this happen to you, squeeze your hand, right? Have you been housing insecure? Have you, I'm not going to get what he said right. But it was this physical intervention to say, mm-hmm. you've had that pain, you've had that pain, you've had that pain. This person, two people, I'm only holding two people's hands, and they've had this pain. How do we remember to show up for each other for these things that don't require more than a 15-minute conversation to explain why you're showing up? Let's save the complexity and the consultation and the design and the activism, the advocacy for that other side of the fight, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think there's something in there that that's part of the, the work of how we reorganize this, because, again, we're at this such a fundamentally broken place. And I know that's, again, by design of, you know, asking people to engage in too much. It's, it's too much, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so and I want to just back up and um clarify what I meant by producers, not just consumers before, because I think it gets what what I meant there was participating, having the capacity and being empowered to participate. So it was more a producer of the voice, because what we were talking about was the web. And I, I think there the participation needs to be to some extent on our terms right mm-hmm. we there is the 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 organized collective whatever but even before that there has to be the opportunity to be able to reflect yourself and to prepare yourself and to be able to to have the tools and to have the space and to have the luxury of being able to think who am i what is my position and to express that in some way and to play with it and get feedback and then come to some to come to that collective conversation but uh so it's it's and you're right i mean when we talk about often when when i said production it it seemed to go to that monetizing place and yes everything is being monetized the the one thing that i'm also so worried about is that 
our technical systems, which are in are taking over, the only two values that are there are popularity and money, right? I mean, it's that those are the only two values that are measured, reflected. Uh, our data systems are all about the popular. I mean, the the data that we're gathering is about the popular. There's no way to express values that are not part of those metrics. It's either one person, one vote, and we tally them up and the largest number wins, or it's um, how much, what's the impact monetarily. Um, so we, we really need to think about ways of making manifest within, and what, what you're talking about in terms of the hand, that, that's manifest. It's something that is grounded it is real it's um we need to make manifest other values than popularity and money and the coming get together collectively and being able to represent yourself collectively and knowing who to trust and and who not to trust and understanding means that that you need the tools and the space and the security to be grounded in yourself before you join that collective space and make decisions together um and i think that's but that's where when i think about from a reconciliation perspective for example the idea that i'm listening to people thinking about how you would you know deal with sovereignty what i've learned in in using that word lately is it resonates uh, with the quebec conversation it does not necessarily resonate in a in a country of so many different nations, which is what Canada is, if you even want to, you know, Canada's own sovereignty is definitely contestable. Um, so the point there is that this thing that I don't see enough, to my mind, understanding of is if we we need to split up who's fighting which piece of a fight, right? Mm-hmm. And in terms of anybody being able to manifest sovereignty, that those the, the needs, say, of the institution of Canada as a state. Um, making sure that those infrastructures, whether they're housing, water, all of this, fighting that fight to make sure that some of those promises are kept and that relationship is is more supportive of people being able to engage in their sovereignty or the you know of of their nation, say, or in our democracy of the of a liberal democracy in Canada. That your point is so it's so important. And I think what happens is people skip over that piece of their responsibility to fight that fight and get mired in some of the more, you know, uh, specifics or more granular pieces of maybe it's design or maybe it's this or maybe it's that. And and that that baseline isn't there, right? That foundation for people to be able to, to participate isn't there. And and the politics of how to engage with that, I think this goes back to this 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 tiredness of so many who know if you show up in Ottawa and say, we need everybody to have a home, they're not doing it. It's not happening. Like this thing where I think, well, of course, you would think there's some moral, you know, in a, in a country as small as and as rich as this one. This is why Canada, this Canada for me frustrates me in a way that I, I is so different than anywhere else because it's what we could be doing instead. We could be leading so many different things for others to see because we have that capacity. And that's why getting all mixed in with the United States yeah. is a cultural problem we have on so many levels. But Canada is, again, grotesque in the opportunity cost of how we could be operating differently. And this is it. We could set those baseline conditions so easily here. Mm-hmm. 
so that that next level up would be just thriving like this is where Canada is is so it's just it's so wrong with that with that context we can't get those conditions set as a baseline because it's hard for us to talk about different collectivism advocacy activism co-creation co-design when as you say who has the time and this who has the time to reflect and come out and be themselves in a slow way and when you talk about metrics we have no metrics for listening listening like the 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 high premium there should be on inactivity right now like when you don't do a thing that makes things worse or when you actually listen long enough to even maybe change your mind there's no metric there right that that's that's recorded as inactivity in a lot of the ways that we collect data right and that's really problematic because how are we going to move through that? So I like that you brought it back to that sort of like on a data level, where are we recording and, and how are we identifying value and how, how we value things like silence and slowness, which are inefficiency is fundamentally vital to good relationships. I am sure of it. You have yeah. to be inefficient with relationships because that means you even have space to screw up. You have space to say the wrong thing to each other. You have space to cool off and come back and know that you care more about each other and what you're doing than that thing that happened in the heat of the moment, say in the conversation. So how we, how we value that, I don't, I mean, that's not what's happening in our technical systems. It's not, it's not what's happening in our political systems. Um, And it would be really interesting to creatively try to understand that problem, but maybe this is where it goes back to your example of a few people doing a thing together and, there may be things, and I think that inheriting the idea that scale is a necessary piece of stuff is another problem, right? But 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 where where do we pull the capacity? If we think about terms like centralized and decentralized, I think one of the things that a colleague of mine, Sean McDonald, has been really good at helping me understand is devolved. Like decentralized, we know we've got no shot at holding it all together when it's things are fully decentralized. I think we lose the chance to salvage the institutions that could be the devolved layer of some of these. So I'm just trying to put some of these words in because I know that they live both in the planning and other communities, right? Of like centralized, decentralized planning. But what does devolved stuff look like, right? Like is is that, can can we think about what's the adequate middle? What's the, and it's not exactly going to be middle, but... Um, there's something there when we want to think about governance structurally to make sure that we don't over-index to the decentralized models. Because I think when I think about, you know, whether we think yeah. fungi or others, I think people, re- they go over too far to the completely decentralized models. And I don't see how we can do our work that way either. Yeah. And I, I think that you, you were mentioning the state before and the importance of the state. And I think one of the the roles that the state should have is to defend us or to create a space where we both can have those deliberate, thoughtful self-reflection, but then the the smaller reflection. Canada, and and you were mentioning Canada, and I think there, um, and I'm I'm an immigrant, um, so Canada is something that I've done more conscious reflection of, of what is Canada versus all the other countries I've lived in. And the one thing that bothers me about Canada is we abandon things at the point when they become successful. Or uh, so 
having been involved in things like Volnet and Schoolnet and all of those collective efforts, the minute they reach any sort of sustainability and survival, thriving, um, we we drop them um, because there's this idea that, well, <laughs> um, I'm not sure, I haven't completely analyzed why that is, but we we tend towards paternalism, right? It, that our, um, our collective altruism, perhaps, I mean, the, the good, the desire to do good turns to paternalism too often. Um, and collectively, we let that happen as opposed to taking our right to, the, to participating in the decision making. Um, and you're right about the values. We have demonized so many things that are so valuable, like mistakes and failure, especially in in education and learning, um, our notions of scale are that it has to be formulaic replication as opposed to the scaling by diversification, which would make it more dynamically resilient. I'm conscious, Kava and Arizu, of the time that we have, um, and I'm glad you you have some post-production opportunity as well. Oh gosh, I there are so many things I, I would love to continue with this discussion on. Kava, we probably haven't been talking so much about homelessness or community or homes as much, but I think it all undergirds the, this. Um, in order to create a space that is home, that makes space and that uh, for everyone, I, I think these are issues that uh, we need to at least consider. Um, and salvage, of course, means that we accept some of the things that we can't currently change. But I, I, I think it is a process of evolution where we need to build those fungi networks between <laughs> each other that, that will allow each of the tr trees to thrive. Yes, it's not a yes, but it's a yes. And when we talk about housing and homelessness, I think it's one of it's one of those areas where it so long as we stay, we, we, who's we, those yeah. of us who, who might be involved in, I'll say people who might self-identify as like people who are involved in city building or, or urban issues, right? If we don't shift the frame into some of these structural things, I feel like we're just going to enter the fifth decade of replicating this neoliberal governance structure problem where you participate in a system. And it's our own imagination that's causing this constraint. And, mm -hmm. and so long as we don't go back up and out of this a bit more and more broadly and wider, I was watching this wonderful conversation with um, Dion Brand and Ronaldo Walcott. And they talked about, you know, the anti-blackness in Canada, which, of course, we have to talk about when we talk about planning and homelessness and housing. Right. Like, let's just say there. Yeah. one of the things that they mentioned, which is so persistent when we think about time, is the CBC, for example, sort of reporting and people Canada being ah, racism in this town. Oh, wow. This sort of maintaining this persistent innocence of the state of Canada. And I mean, I, I can say to you, as someone who's watching Canada be uh, trying to be a leader in artificial intelligence and ethics, oh, and I'm yeah. sitting there thinking this myth of Canada in the world is so pernicious as any kind of a human rights leader in anything. It's wild. It's not wild in terms of 
the fact that it's happening because you can see how all the institutions were only ever set up to do such a thing, including, you know, the Canada Council of the Arts. Like you can go all over the place here. All of these colonial institutional pieces are components of the discussions about urban issues, homelessness, housing, rights, racism, all of it, right? And so yeah. long as we don't go and find new language to talk about all of those issues together and to ignore, that's why for me, salvage, it, it came to mind recently because someone shared an article about Hong Kong and how you had all kinds of arrests happening, you know, it was basically a backlash to any kind of democracy recently. And someone who was um, quoted in a piece saying, as long as we have heartache, Hong Kong is salvageable. I'm not quoting them exactly right. But in the face of such a, just such a complete shutdown of democracy, to hear someone say, as long as my heart hurts, we can salvage this because I still care, um, is inspiring to me because that's, when we think about democratic decline or problems in Canada, like we have to put this in, we do need to think about the world and context and everything else, right? So in Canada, we are the... The, the responsibility people should feel to show up every day on this stuff because we could be doing so much better. Like it's bad here, but it's also as long as we cannot call out these pieces of why it has been this 40 years of this particular version of stasis is really important. I don't want to show up and keep running in a circle. Okay, thank you both Bianca and Yuta, and we can't wait for the second part. It was episode 16 of Quantization, the Fungi Network. We want to thank Bianca and Yuta for being part of this conversation. We hope to hear your opinions and comments on this topic. For more episodes and full transcripts, please check out our website, quantization.ca, and come back for upcoming episodes. Marshall Bureau is the composer of all tracks. Quantization Podcast.